0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we recap the busy final weeks of the 2016 Supreme Court term, The court just announced big decisions on religious liberty, racial gerrymandering, and free speech. And the justices accepted a series of blockbuster cases for next year, including challenges to President Trump's travel and refugee ban. Joining me to make sense of this whirlwind cascade of constitutional news are two of America's leading court watchers, friends of We the People, a veritable constitutional dream team, Brian Gorod is Chief Counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center in Washington, D.C., and Ilya Shapiro is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Brian, Ilya, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Good to be
0: back. Let us jump right in on the question of your overall impressions of the term, uh, it was a remarkable to see this eight-member court uh, reaching consensus rather than division. And how did uh, things change once Justice Gorsuch was confirmed? Uh, Brian, why don't you start us off?
1: Well, it definitely was a quieter term than we've gotten used to. The last few terms had blockbuster after blockbuster and next year is certainly poised to be the same, but this term, you know, didn't have as many of the high-profile cases that everyone was watching. Didn't mean the cases the court was deciding weren't important, but they definitely tended to be smaller legal issues, more technical questions, and as a result, the court was able to find more consensus than it often does. Um, You know, Justice Gorsuch was only there for a month at the end of the term, but I think we are already getting a real taste of the kind of justice that he is going to be, and that is one who is not shy about his expressing his views on all sorts of issues. I think in his first two months in the court, he wrote more separate opinions or the same number of separate opinions as Justice Kagan wrote in her first two terms at the court. Um, So we are definitely going to hear a lot more from him next year, particularly as the court takes on a number of hot-button issues.
0: Thank you so much for that. Ilya, your thoughts? And also, um, Chief Justice Roberts has said he likes unanimity and consensus. He was able to achieve it on an eight-member court. Could he continue to achieve it on a nine-member court with Justice Gorsuch next year?
2: Well, only in the same way that he uh, achieved it. uh, I think it was the 2013 term that uh, exceeded even this one for the number of uh, unanimous uh, decisions. But they were A lot of uh, decisions with uh, strident concurrences by, say, Scalia and Thomas, uh, that were dissents in all but names, saying you can't split the baby that way, that's not a rule of law, that sort of thing. This term was a different dynamic. Uh, we we have the unanimity or the greater consensus, not necessarily because of Roberts uh, or anyone else's minimalism, uh, but because, as Brianne said, uh, the cases were less controversial, uh, lower profile, and that's a direct consequence of Justice Scalia's passing. The biggest consequence of his absence wasn't necessarily on the cases, how they were decided, uh, with the absent, with the exception of, of of one or two, but on the cert grants uh, that spilled over into this term, that were both fewer and lower profile than what we would expect. And as Brianne said, next term we'll get into this. We'll uh, become again what we've gotten used to, uh, you know, uh, uh, yet another term of the century. I think this will be our eighth one in in this decade. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll keep them going. Uh, Brianne, the Trinity Lutheran case. Um, why? What was the holding? Why did Justices Thomas and Gorsuch not join in footnote three? What did that footnote say? And what are the potential implications for free exercise jurisprudence?
1: Sure. So this was a case about a Missouri state program that gave funds to nonprofits to reimburse them for the installation of rubber playground surfaces made from recycled tire. You know, the idea is kid falls off the monkey bars, he won't um, hurt himself. Um, the Church Trinity Church applied for this program for a grant, and even though um, the state ranked its application, fifth out of forty four applications. It wasn't given a grant because of a provision in the Missouri state constitution that bars giving money from the state treasury um, to um, bars that money from going directly or indirectly in aid of any church, sect, or denomination of religion. Um, so everyone thought this might be one of the closely divided cases of the term. The court delayed oral argument for another m- number of months until Justice Gorsuch um, was on the bench. Um, but it ended up being not that close a case. The court seven to um, ruled for the church. Um, the court's majority majority said the government needs a very good reason to rely on someone's religious identity to deny him a benefit that would otherwise be generally available. And the government didn't offer one here. But what was particularly interesting about the case was that the footnote three, as you mentioned, you always got to read the footnotes. And in footnote three, the chief justice writing for the court said the issue in this case was expressed discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. And the court wasn't weighing in on religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. And notably, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas refused to join that footnote. They otherwise joined the majority's opinion, but didn't join that footnote 3. And Justice Gorsuch made clear why that was. He was worried that that footnote might be interpreted to indicate that the ruling only applied in the specific context of playgrounds. And he said such a reasoning would be unreasonable for our cases are governed by general principles rather than ad hoc improvisations. So I think the real question coming out of Trinity Lutheran is just how broad this decision is going to be applied and, you know, how many members of the court are willing to extend its principle beyond this particular context. Um, Justice Sotomayor dissented um, very passionately. Um, She expressed concern that this was going to really weaken uh, the country's commitment to a separation of church and state. And whether that's true or not is really going to depend how other members of the court apply this principle going forward.
0: Uh, Thanks very much for that. Uh, Ilya, your thoughts? And also uh, supporters of the decision say it's a straightforward application of the principle in cases like uh, Zalman involving school vouchers that uh, public funds can go to religious and secular institutions on Equal terms uh, opponents say that it really could open the floodgates for public support of religion that's directed by government and not individual choice. Uh, who's right?
2: Well, it. Uh, I mean, this I think was an easy case. Uh, this was not about uh, you know a government subsidy of books. Does that mean we can all, we, we have to subsidize Bibles at the same time? Uh, it's uh, a neutral criteria that the church satisfied for its playground. Um, the subsidies go only after you've spent the money. So it's not kind of a, a fungible funds, uh, sort of issue. Not every uh, institution would be refurbishing their playground, uh, in, in the absence of, 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 these particular subsidies. And, and look, the, the only reason why the church, the only reason why the church didn't get the, uh, the funds was because it was a religious institution. That's, uh, I think Briar, Justice Breyer, and his concurrence was right. This is very much like, uh, Can we provide uh, police and fire protection to uh, houses of worship? This is uh, much farther away from uh, school choice uh, issues, which uh, I side with the uh, supporters of school choice as well, because there are several uh, layers of intervening decision makers between the grant of funds and the uh, uh, and the decision to, to to fund the school, the parents, the scholarship givers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you know going forward, what footnote three means or what Trinity Lutheran means more broadly, uh, I think doesn't change too many things. Um, lower court judges that are skeptical of or 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 police more strictly, uh, the particular line between uh, between church and state will continue to do so. Uh, those that uh, you know aren't afraid as much of uh, of of impositions or or intertangling. Uh, uh, won't um, uh, you know? This was such a such a clear case for me, and I think that's why Justice Kagan joined in the entirety uh, and uh, of the of the ruling, and and, and Justice Breyer did essentially a, a, as well, though uh, uh, literally joined only in the judgment, but uh, but effectively, uh, I didn't see anything in his writing that that disagreed with uh, Roberts's
0: point. Uh, thanks for all that, uh, Brian, We have two cases on racial gerrymandering, Bethune Hill and Board of Elections, uh, and then Cooper and Harris. What did the court hold and what is the significance of those decisions?
1: So these were two cases out of Virginia and North Carolina about whether the use of fixed racial quotas in um, the drawing of state legislative districts violates the 14th Amendment. Um, in Virginia, there were all these districts where the mapmaker says there had to be a fixed 55 percent uh, percentage of the voting population made up of African-American voters. Um, in North Carolina, there was a fixed 50 percent of the population plus one. And the concern about this is that, you know, this kind of racial gerrymandering packs African-Americans into specific districts and thus dilutes their voting strength in nearby districts. Um, and in both cases, um, the court made clear that courts have to carefully review uh, state district lines to ensure consistency with the Fourteenth Amendment's guarantee of equal protection for all persons. Um, in Virginia in the Virginia case, the court held seven one that the lower court Applied the wrong legal standard in looking at these districts. The lower court had said, you know, you had to look at whether there was an actual conflict between the map and between traditional redistricting principles. And the Supreme Court made clear that race can be the primary, the predominant factor um, in redistricting, even when the plan is consistent with these traditional redistricting criteria. So things like the compactness of the district, um, the contiguity of the district. Um, and in the North Carolina case, um, the court, the closer case, um, was a 5-3 decision, and the court, um, again, said that race was the predominant factor in the drawing of these lines, and that that wasn't necessary um, to comply with the Voting Rights Act, which was the justification um, that the state had offered. Um, one thing that was particularly interesting about the North Carolina case, um, especially in light of a big case the court is going to be hearing next term, um, was that the state had argued that these lines were drawn not for racial reasons, but for partisan ones. Um, they wanted to pack Democrats into particular districts. And in this case, the court rejected that argument. It said the equal protection guarantee doesn't allow the use of race as a proxy for politics. Um, and again, the court's going to revisit this issue of partisan gerrymandering, and case I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit.
0: Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, switching gears, Elia, we have... Uh, cases involving First Amendment issues, Mattel versus Tam and Packingham versus North Carolina. Uh, tell us about those cases.
2: Yeah. Uh, thanks for turning me to uh, turning to me on that rather than on the racial gerrymandering, which is just a head scratcher. It's, it's a you know the only thing I, I ever think of the the racial gerrymandering cases. It's it's the Goldilocks principle. You uh, can't use race too much or too little, and you know whatever Justice Kennedy I guess decides goes. Uh, we might see a, a replay of that of sorts in the partisan gerrymandering case that we have coming up, uh, and that reminds me of uh, Rick Hasen's excellent uh, article. I don't necessarily agree with him on on a lot of legal things, but his description of of that kind of gerrymandering, his article is called Race or Party, Party is Race or Party All the Time, and I commend that to you. But anyway, on the First Amendment, um, Mittal v. Tam, and it's unfortunate that it didn't stick with its original title of Lee v. Tam because Michelle Lee uh, resigned as uh, patent and Trademark Office uh, director about uh, 10 days before this came down. Uh, but anyway, this case involved the Asian-American rock band, The Slants, um, and they uh, were trying to take back uh, a racial slur against uh, against Asians and Asian-Americans um, by reappropriating it and taking pride and turning it around and a lot of their songs are uh, fierce uh, social and political commentary, and yet they were denied the right to re- register their trademark uh, because of the Lanham Act, that's a trade, the federal trademark law, uh, had uh, a disparagement, anti-disparagement clause that you cannot register a trademark that is disparaging of someone or of groups. Um, uh, but it's curious because uh, there's a whole uh, uh, range of trademarks that are seem to be much more offensive or, or or disparaging of various racial or ethnic groups than the slants that have been registered. That was brought uh, out more most evocatively in the amicus brief that was filed by the Washington Redskins, uh, who of course are interested uh, because their trademarks were deregistered. Their decades-old trademarks were deregistered a few years uh, ago. Uh, In any event, um, uh, this case, the the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the um, uh, disparagement clause violates the First Amendment. It's too subjective. The government shouldn't be acting as a censor trying to determine uh, what is or or isn't too offensive. Uh, You have problems of vagueness uh, in in how that statute is, how that provision uh, is structured. And so at the end of the day, uh, the Slants uh, do get to uh, register their trademarks. And presumably, the Redskins will, uh, will win on, on remand in, in, in their case below. Uh, and it will be up to the, uh, the private uh, marketplace of ideas uh, uh, or market of, of literal marketplace of commerce to uh, judge whether uh, particular trademarks are, are successful or not. The key point here from the court is that uh, trademarks do not constitute government speech. Uh, and since this is not government speech, the government uh, cannot be restricting based on viewpoint that you don't like this or that or that person or, or, or this person. Uh, it's not government speech because if it were, then it's not clear what the government would be, uh, as Justice Alito put it, for the court babbling, because you have a whole lot of things uh, that it's saying uh, in, 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 in contradiction uh, of itself. As, as Nina Totenberg allowed me to say on national public radio. Uh, I, I can't believe that the government stands behind the position of capitalism sucks donkey balls, which is one of the the, the trademarked uh, uh, phrases. So anyway, moving on from that colorful case, and Jeff, uh, uh, we did a podcast when uh, when that was argued months ago. Uh, moving on to the Packingham case, which showed that sex offenders, even sex offenders, have First Amendment rights. Uh, this is a case where the um, uh, North Carolina uh, had a very broad statute. Uh, prohibiting uh, sex offenders, that is, people who have served their time um, uh, and and are released, but there are certain restrictions that that apply to sex offenders. Uh, Here, this goes beyond simply uh, being prohibited from uh, trying to communicate with minors, say, to uh, restricting or, or banning of access to all social media sites. And the way that social media sites is defined, it could sweep in Things like WebMD or Amazon or even the New York Times and Washington Post websites, because after all, you create a uh, a profile and can make comments and interact with other people uh, on those sites. That's a bridge too far, uh, the court said uh, again uh, unanimously, although some concurrences that uh, by Justice Alito. Uh, uh, about you know limiting that expression, he basically said that Justice Kennedy was too sweeping or waxed too poetic uh, in talking about the majesty of the of, of Facebook. I, I paraphrase uh, a little bit, not too much. Um, and so this shows that North Carolina needs to do this like all other states. Apparently, this is an outlier. Uh, you can certainly craft a law that says uh, you can't use Facebook to interact with minors. You can't uh, go to sites that specifically. T- Target minors, like if I don't know if Nickelodeon has a uh, an interactivity uh, portion. Uh, if you're a sex offender, you can be restricted from from accessing that sort of thing. But but again, the problem here was that the North Carolina statute was too broad and wasn't narrowly tailored to the uh, understandably uh, compelling or or significant government interest of preventing sex offenders from uh, interacting uh, with minors.
0: Thank you very much indeed for that. All right. Now let us uh, turn to uh, the Ziegler case, where the court ruled 4-2 that high-level officials in President Bush's administration can't be sued for abuses they were accused of committing after 9-11. Uh, Brian, what was the court's reasoning?
1: Yeah, so this was really an, a very important access to court case, and a term that didn't get a lot of attention. This is a case that really should have gotten a bit more. Um, the case arose out of the detention and abuse of Muslim immigrants following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. These immigrants were... Beaten, they were strip searched, they were subject to harassment, um, and you know, said you said, they sued um, two groups of federal officials, including high-ranking executive branch officials. And the key question in the case is whether they could sue those federal officials for damages, for monetary damages, for violating their constitutional rights um, under this 1971 case called Bivens. Um, and in that case, the court has held that individuals could bring damages actions against federal officers who violated the Fourth Amendment prohibition against unreasonable search and seizure. Um, In this case, the court said that no, they they couldn't sue. And interesting, this was a 4-2 decision, only six justices deciding this case. Justice Gorsuch hadn't yet joined the bench, and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan were both recused. Um, and the court's reasoning was essentially that Congress hadn't explicitly provided a right to sue federal officials for violating the Constitution in this way. According to Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion for the court, you know, whether or a damages action should be allowed was a decision for Congress to make, not the courts, so which is a really stunning thing to say given the role that courts are supposed to play in our system, is a check on a legal executive branch action. You know, particularly in this day of legislative gridlock and dysfunction, um, what Justice Kennedy's opinion allows is for legislative inertia. You know, the simple fact that Congress hasn't acted um, to effectively immunize officers for even flagrant violations of the Constitution. Um, and this decision, you know, really suggested that more broadly than just you know Muslim immigrants trying to vindicate their constitutional rights, it's going to be a lot. More difficult for individuals trying to vindicate constitutional rights, um, more generally, and you know, Justice Breyer um, for himself and Justice Ginsburg wrote a really passionate dissent, um, you know, saying that the court was wrong to close the courthouse doors in this way, and you know, talking in particular about the context in which this case arose, uh, you know, uh, to one one set of one way of thinking, you know, the fact that um, this case arose out of fact following the 9/11 terrorist attacks. Um, you know, gives the executive branch more deference. But, you know, as Justice Breyer made clear in his in his case, um, in his dissent, you know, there is a greater need for the judiciary to play this kind of role as a check on a legal executive branch action, in particularly this context. And, you know, there's other safeguards um, that exist in times of war or national security emergency to prevent undue interference by the judiciary. And, and he said, given that, the court's abolition or its limitations of Bivens' actions goes too far. Um, he wrote, and I think this is a, a great line, if you're cold, put in a sweater, perhaps an overcoat, perhaps also turn up the heat, but do not set fire to the House. And in and, and his view, that was what the court did with its, with its decision.
0: Um, Ilya, was uh, Justice Breyer being uh, uh, overly alarmed or not? This
2: was a, a hard case to judge, and I think the court suffered from not having a, a full compliment to, to flesh out some more uh, ideas. I, I didn't really focus on it. It, it, was, a, it was a curious case because the, the intersection of the Fourth Amendment and Bivens' claims and statutory rights, I think the majority probably got it right. But I also agree with uh, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion that perhaps the court needs to overhaul its qualified immunity doctrine altogether. Uh, that that a lot of it is kind of standardless and is just a default that the uh, regardless of what the underlying circumstances are, qualified immunity applies, and that's not the way it should be.
0: Great. Well, now let us uh, turn to the Moore case, Moore in Wisconsin, involving property rights. Ilya, I think that's your domain, and you have a special designation for uh, uh, this case. So tell us about more and your role in describing it.
2: Oh, well, that's right. I am your merman, uh, Jeff, uh, in talking. And in fact, nice. Uh, th- just that's nice.
0: Bravo. Th- Thank the, you. Uh,
2: the the, the, the The plaintiffs here uh, actually do. It's a group of siblings. They do call themselves the the Mermen and Mermaids, uh, the the brothers and sisters. It's quite a crew from Wisconsin. But anyhow, uh, this involves a a family from Wisconsin, the Mers. The parents long ago bought two plots of land, uh, one of which they developed on a lake, um, uh, built a, a, a cottage. The other one was not developed at all. It was kind of just backwoods. Um, when the uh, siblings uh, inherited this land, uh, they determined that they could not um, uh, provide a, a upkeep on their cottage or they wanted to expand their cottage, but they weren't liquid enough, so they wanted to uh, uh, to sell off the the the, the second plot uh, and and use that money uh, on the first plot. And now, the state of Wisconsin, through various zoning and legislative decisions, um treated uh, uh, those two plots as one, uh, the 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 so-called parcel as a whole doctrine as as it's evolved in uh, various jurisprudence, uh, and said, no, this is uh, this is one uh, this is this is one plot, and we are. Uh, we don't want uh, uh, overdevelopment. You cannot develop on on this part of your plot. Of course, you can on the other. Do whatever you want. To, you know, expand your cottage or what what you know, put in a pool, whatever you want on the on the other uh, on the other part. Uh, but uh, you can't you can't develop this uh, you know plot B. Uh, and the uh, the MERS said, but look, your this is a regulatory taking through your zoning decisions or anti-development rulings, um, or legislation. Uh, you have. Uh, prevented us from uh, using 100% uh, of this other plot. Uh, And uh, as we know, from regulatory takings, uh, jurisprudence is very muddled. But one thing that we definitely know is that when the government regulation uh, consumes 100% or virtually 100% of the value of of the land or prevents you from doing anything from it, then the government has to compensate you for its value. So that's where um, uh, the battle was joined. Um, ultimately the court ruled uh, five to three with uh, uh, Kennedy joined uh, joining the uh, the more liberal justices uh, uh, in ruling for the state and saying that this this was not a takings and the, and the state can properly uh, if all of its uh, you know, legal bells bells and whistles in terms of municipal and state law uh, and, and regulatory action action are in place uh, can indeed uh, treat the um, uh, uh, these parcels, as it did, and and it doesn't, uh, you know, treat the parcel as a whole, and therefore you're only burdening with this regulation half or forty percent or whatever the, uh, the 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 proportion uh, is. Uh, the um, this is uh, to my mind, I've Cato filed a brief uh, supporting the MERS. Uh, I think is a, a a big loss to property rights. Roger Pilon, my colleague, had a uh, has an op-ed in today's Washington Examiner going into more detail. Uh, on this um but really I, I think this uh this means that uh, for practical purposes uh, people with complicated uh, uh, land holding arrangements and uh, many children that may inherit really need to invest in a good trust and estates uh, and, uh, real property, uh, lawyer, because I think a lot of this could have been prevented had the parents in their original trust document or the arrangement, the legal arrangement, their titling arrangements that they'd set up, uh, had they, 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 they may have been able to prevent, uh, uh, uh this, uh, this development from happening.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Brian, you can be a mermaid, if you like, and uh, add to uh, the merman's commentary, or we can move on to the cases that the court remanded, which included Hernandez and Mesa, the border shooting case, uh, and the court also scheduled a few other cases for re-argument. Is there any significance to these scheduled uh, arguments?
1: Well, you know, Hernandez uh, was a a tragic case involving a cross-border shooting of um, a young man at the United States-Mexican border. And one of the key questions in that case was whether his family could sue for damages under that Bivens case that I was talking about in the context of the 9-11 case. So you know, given that the Supreme Court issued the significant ruling that it did in Ziegler, it wasn't that surprising that it sent that case back um, to the lower court to revisit. And then the court did schedule reargument in two cases um, for next term. These were, you know, almost certainly cases in which the eight justice court was divided. And now that they've got a ninth justice, you know, reargument will give them a chance to resolve these questions.
0: Wonderful, uh, yeah. yeah uh anything more on the remands? And if not, let us turn to the court's decision to hear the cases about President Trump's immigration travel executive order. Completely fascinating case uh, to help us understand precisely what it held and what the significance is.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, on the remands, uh, I'm surprised there were so few, frankly, from this uh, long period of of an eight justice court. But uh, they avoided them, uh, uh, or not not just remands, but rearguments. Uh, they avoided uh, they avoided those as as well, for the most part. Um, the, the the travel ban. Um, it's interesting what the court did. So it stayed the stay of the ban. Uh, if you triple negative, uh, if you will, that is the the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit for different reasons uh, had uh, put in an injunction, had blocked. Uh, the uh, the executive order, the second executive order now that's at issue, uh, relating to the, the the travel restrictions of people from six Middle Eastern countries, uh, and the Supreme Court took up the case, expedited it somewhat. That is, that we're not going to have argument next week or decision over the summer. But uh, normally, a case that's uh, granted cert at the end of June is going to be argued in November or December. This one is going to be argued that first week of October when the court's back. Uh, but at the same time, issued a stay uh... of the lower court rulings for the most part that is it allowed most of the uh... executive order most of the travel ban to go into effect carving out people who have bona fide relationships with americans Uh, and that is not an existing legal term of art so presumably there are now going to be uh... there's now going to be during the summer litigation of someone who uh... whether they have a, a bona fide relationship or not although it's not clear really how many people uh, are affected uh, that is in the second executive order there already was an exclusion or at least a possibility of a waiver for people who have family members or have a a genuine educational relationship students uh or or a business relationship well uh you know i don't know that that, that clearly excludes mere tourists but i don't know how many uh, yemeni uh, honeymooners are looking to go to hawaii or uh, somali vacationers to uh to Disney World or, or what have you that don't have otherwise uh, any ties uh, to America. Maybe there's some gray zone about, say, a businessman uh, from Libya or what have you that wants to encourage cultural and commercial connections to Texas and gets in touch with the Chamber of Commerce of Texas and the Tourism Board, but hadn't had business before, but wants to get this up and running. Maybe there'll be some sort of you know gray area there, but uh, again, unclear. But really, uh, what the court has set up to do is I think I think Chief Justice Roberts especially and many of his colleagues want this to go away. They don't want to be involved in such a sensitive political issue uh, in, in either direction. They don't want to either be uh, ratifying or encouraging uh, some of these uh, kind of uh, unusual or, or politically controversial moves that President Trump has been doing. Uh, at the same time, they don't want to be seen as uh, the judges second guessing. Um, the executive branch's national security decisions, because that could have a wide-ranging uh, precedential uh, implications. So by scheduling argument for months out, uh, by letting most of the travel ban go into effect, and by calling for further briefing on whether the case uh, becomes moot, uh, whether because most of the plaintiffs are exempt from the travel ban now, uh, the way that the injunction is in place, or the waivers are in place, uh, or because the, the the executive order will run its course. It goes in for 90 or 120 days, depending on which, which provisions. So I, you know, I think more likely than not, to the extent that the court even issues an uh, an ultimate ruling uh, in this case, uh, will will have a, it, it kicked on standing grounds or or on mootness or or what have you, and uh, we'll go back to square one for whatever the next executive order is after the studies of the heightened vetting and uh, information is received or not from the, uh, from the six countries uh, that the State Department and Homeland Security have been charged uh, with implementing. So stay tuned on that. I don't think this is the first, uh, and I don't think the uh, whatever decision after October argument will be the last that we'll hear about uh, litigation over Donald Trump's executive orders on
1: travel restrictions.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Brian, uh, do you agree with uh, Ilya that the case may well be moot by the time that the court hears it in the fall? And then take us into the minds of, and the constitutional reasoning of the liberal justices. Do, do they figure that it was worth it to allow uh, parts of the bans to go into effect in exchange for basically mooting out the case? And, and what are we to make of the more conservative justices, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, suggesting that the court implicitly believed by majority vote that part of the existing ban was legally permissible?
1: You know, I I actually think about it um, in almost the opposite way than Ilya. I mean, I I don't think of this as the court uh, allowing most of the travel ban to go into effect. I think the court actually allowed most of the lower court injunction to remain in place, Um, And, you know, the court explained its reasoning for carving out foreign nationals who lack any bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. You know, the court explained that the lower courts considered the burden on the parties before them who had direct ties to individuals seeking entry into the country. The lower courts extended the injunction to parties similarly situated, and and all the court objected to was drawing the injunction much broader and allowing um, foreign nationals with no ties to be encompassed by the injunction. And, you know, I think that's important to to recognize. You know, the Trump administration, the president tried to declare this a win. But if this is a win, it's difficult to imagine, uh, you know, what a loss would look like. Um, it's no surprise the court took these cases, given the significance of the issues. And, you know, again, the court allowed the lower court injunctions to remain largely in effect. And I, I do agree with Ilya that, you know, there is certainly a strong possibility that this case uh could be moot by when the court hears it. You know, it's it's telling that the court added the question asking whether it's in fact already moot. Um there's also the separate oddity that Ilya also alluded to, which is that you know, these, uh, travel restrictions are supposed to be in a place to allow the administration time to review and revise its vetting procedures. They said they need, you know, 90 days, um, to do that. Well, by the time the court hears this case, you know, even in early October, those 90 days will have elapsed. And so it's not clear at that point what the rationale, um, would even be for the continuation of the ban. You know, as to the, the justices who would have, uh, Uh, stayed the entire injunction. You know, I think it's um, really telling, you know, where Justice Gorsuch is. You know, this was kind of his first test to demonstrate his independence from the president who appointed him. And, you know, he was with the court's most conservative members um, joining an opinion that, uh, you know, made clear that they would have let the travel ban go into effect in its entirety, and, you know, making some pretty stark statements that I don't think have any actual support. You know, as you said, they suggested that the court's majority implicitly said that the um, government is likely to prevail on the merits, and I think that word implicitly is doing a lot of work, because if you actually look at the opinion, the court's opinion nowhere suggests that. The court really focused on the equities um, of allowing the lower court injunctions to remain in place. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what ends up happening with this case and whether we, you know, even get the decision on the merits at all. Uh,
0: Thanks for that. Well, Ilya, since Brian characterized Justice Gorsuch's concurrence, we touched on him at the beginning of the show, but more thoughts about Justice Gorsuch, uh, his jurisprudence, and uh, what what you made of his performance during his brief time on the court.
2: Well, he's Gorsuch the real deal. Uh, That was... (laughs) Those You're who were fount hoping,
0: of aphorisms today
2: those who saying. were hoping for uh, or fearing a, uh, a smooth writing uh, textualist uh, who took the judicial role not to rewrite legislation seriously uh, got what they were expecting um, so it's still a little early to judge we haven't had significant uh, originalism cases or uh, real culture war cases um, uh, you know some you know the, the precurium about the uh, same-sex wedded uh, birth certificate, uh, notwithstanding, um, and and we'll see. You know, uh, you know whether he is indeed some amalgam of Scalia or Thomas with some natural uh, law sprinkled in uh, per his uh, his his doctorate from uh, from Oxford. Um, I've been impressed with his uh, with his adherence to textualism. Some sometimes even being too on the nose, I think, in four of his 14 opinions, or however many he's written to this point, he's mentioned something like, we begin as we must with uh, the statutory text, or, you know, the judicial role is to apply, not uh, uh, not um, uh, rewrite uh, the, the people's laws. I mean, I think that's a, he's he's establishing a standard to say that, yeah, all that stuff that you read about me from my lower court opinions, uh, that will continue, uh, whether you like it uh, or not. But, but clearly, not like uh, not like Scalia with uh, uh, attacking his colleagues or or making some sort of acerbic uh, remarks or or anything like that. So uh, his performance hasn't really surprised me in result. A little bit of a surprise in terms of the volume of output or the number of cases in which he's written, because typically justices when they start, uh, uh, you know, they sort of you know kind of uh, put their toes in the water for a little bit before fully jumping in. But both at argument uh, and in his writings, it, it's clear that he's not a shrinking violet, uh, but also not someone who's kind of in your face about it. So we're going to have, you know, three decades, presumably, or or more of this kind of uh, genteel, but robust uh, textualism and presumably uh, uh, originalism from Neil Gorsuch.
0: Thank you very much for that. Uh, Brian, we have uh, just a blockbuster term coming up next year. The court agreed to hear hugely significant cases involving cell phone location records, that's the Carpenter case, partisan gerrymandering, that's the Gill case, and Masterpiece Cake Shop, that's the same-sex marriage and wedding cakes. Case, uh, can you discuss uh, broadly why these cases might be important?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is going to be a, a huge term next year because the court has already, we're only in, in June, the court has already taken a number of really significant cases that could um, really make huge marks on the law and that also um, raise the kind of hot-button issues that people really care about and are going to pay attention to. The, the Carpenter case you mentioned is a, a case about The use of cell phone data by law enforcement, whether they can, without a warrant, um, get from cell phone companies, what's called cell tower sighting information, so basically information about what cell towers your cell phone pings, which can let them um, see where people are and where they go over a period of time, a case that lots of people are going to really care about, um, the partisan gerrymandering case. Um, is obviously um, going to be hugely interesting and have potentially huge ramifications. Um, if the court, you know, concludes that courts can't review these types of partisan gerrymandering claims, it could really insulate redistricting maps from challenges um, and allow political parties to extend their control, you know, for decades into the future. And then the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, about um, a a custom cake business that doesn't want to make a cake for uh, a same-sex couple that wants to celebrate their wedding, obviously, again, another hot-button issue and um, could really be very significant um, as the court decides how to navigate claims that pit anti-discrimination laws um, against claims of religious liberty. And I think that'll be one in particular. what will be um, really interesting to see what Justice Gorsuch does. You know, uh, Ilya alluded to his decision in this case about um, uh, same-sex spouses and birth certificates, Arkansas, um, didn't allow a mother's same-sex spouse to be listed in her child's birth certificate, even though the general rule under Arkansas law is that a mother's opposite-sex spouse um, will be listed, even when that person's not the child's biological parent. Um, the court summarily reversed this lower court decision. That's not something the courts, um, the court normally does. Um, and Justice Gorsuch wrote this dissent, joined by Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, which you know indicated a real willingness to at the very least, chip away at Obergefell and the rights that it guarantees same-sex couples. So these religious liberty claims may be another tool for, for chipping away at LGBT rights. And so it'll be really interesting to see what the court does and what Justice Gorsuch does.
0: Uh, thanks for that, Ilya. Do you agree with those thoughts about uh, Justice Gorsuch and the same-sex uh, marriage cases, thoughts on cell phones, partisan gerrymandering, and the and the wedding cake case and and more broadly, are we going to be back to five to four splits next term or, or, or might uh, there some degree of pragmatic consensus reign?
2: Well, I imagine in those cases, I think we will. Um, uh, we'll be back to uh, half the cases being unanimous, uh, plus minus. That's generally the the trend and you never hear about those cases or rarely do. Uh, maybe about a quarter or 20 15, percent, 15 to 25 percent typically are, are five to four and the rest are, are in between. I think we'll probably have that norm because in most cases, including the heterodox criminal uh, justice, criminal defense cases, uh, Gorsuch will uh, vote like Scalia. Um, so the, the hetero- heterodox cases maybe like the cell phone uh, uh, data case. Uh, does the government need a warrant to uh, Uh, compel your cell phone company to disclose uh, all of your pinging off the various towers where your travels are and when you made a phone call and stuff like that Um, those were the types of cases where if not unanimous would be a left and right versus the middle or a principled versus pragmatic and Gorsuch steps right into Scalia's shoes on those uh, as well Uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, I think will be turn out to be much more of a freedom of speech case than a freedom of religion that is uh, bakery as an expressive art is it? Is it not? That's the first threshold question uh, to answer. I think it is because it's a custom uh, cake, not just uh, you know. Will you sell something, some pastry or, or pre-existing cake uh, off your shelves or out of your catalog or, or, or something like that? Uh, and uh, uh, can you be com- if if it is expressive, uh, uh, if, uh, a matter of expression, then can you be compelled to uh, uh, to express something with which you uh, disagree. Cato, of course, has been filing briefs in these sorts of cases, uh, following up on our, our, uh, uh, uh briefs with, uh, Constitutional Accountability Center with Brianne and her colleagues on the same sex marriage cases. Uh, we have been filing in, in favor of freedom of speech and freedom of association in the wedding vendor cases. So if I want to hazard a prediction, um, I think a year from now, Justice Kennedy, right before announcing his retirement, uh, will, uh, in kind of a four-one-four decision, respect both same-sex marriage and the freedom of association, pleasing no one but you know me and my colleagues, and I'll be just fine. Uh, and then he'll go off to uh, you know enjoy the uh, sweet mystery of life.
0: Uh, wow. Well, we will be back next year to check on that bold prediction, and are uh, grateful for it. All right. Time for closing arguments. Um, Adam Liptak's piece in the Times notes that this term. Uh, set a modern record for consensus uh, and that um, it was a level of agreement unseen at the court in more than 70 years. My question, uh, Brian, in closing argument was, is, is the court only able to achieve Chief Justice Roberts' vision of narrow, unanimous decisions marked by pragmatic consensus uh, when it's evenly divided four to four? Or might the habits of unanimity that he talked about uh possibly carry over into the future?
1: And I think we'll definitely continue to see consensus at the court in some areas, as Ilya said. You know, that's the norm that you see it in roughly half the cases. Those are just the ones that people tend not to pay much attention to. You know, even in some of the more high-profile ones next year, I think it's possible that we um, will see broader consensus, the Carpenter um, cell phone location data case, the Fourth Amendment area where the court has sometimes found consensus. There was a, a big case from a few years ago about um, whether police needed a warrant to look at info on the cell phone of someone who'd been arrested. The court unanimously concluded that they did. So I think that's one example where we might be able to see all the justices at least coming to the same results, even if their, their reasoning perhaps differs. But I think in some of these other cases, we are going to see you know pretty contentious cases and and potentially, you know, more five-four splits um, in a term that appears poised to have as many big blockbusters as this one, I think it's difficult to imagine that the the justice will be fine as much consensus as they were able to find this year.
0: Thank you. Uh, Ilya, last word to you. Uh, is consensus only possible on an eight-to-eight court? Uh, might we see it in the future? And, and is consensus a good thing or not? Well,
2: as, a, as I said earlier, I think you can uh, achieve more consensus by splitting the baby in these kind of minimalistic decisions that that Roberts uh, did succeed at uh, in that term uh, four years ago. I think uh, that had the record of uh, something like two thirds or 60% of the cases were were unanimous, um, but you know had had splintering uh, uh, concurrences. Look, these uh, the reason that the Supreme Court takes cases is because they're difficult. They don't take the easy ones, and even the unanimous ones. Um, you know, it's it's not that uh, they have some sort of special wisdom that the lower courts didn't see something. they're they're infallible because they're final. They're not final because they're infallible. Uh, and so, um, uh, some of these cases you would expect because there are different theories of constitutional interpretation, and increasingly those different theories map onto, uh, uh unfortunately I think for the the political health of our country on, on on the on the parties and the parties themselves have become more ideologically coherent in recent decades uh, that might all be blown up uh, you know with our populist age uh, uh, we'll see uh, but um, I, I think I think uh, we'll see more of the same um, uh, under the current composition of the court and um, uh, although Gorsuch's voice is, is different than, than Scalia's in many ways, even if he would vote the same way in, in most cases. Uh, we'll just have to see when Justice Kennedy or uh, Justice Ginsburg or whoever uh, is the next one to uh, depart the court willingly or otherwise, um, how uh, the court will transform at that point. And of course, that will also scramble the type of docket, the, uh, the, the cases that are granted cert. So there's always a shift. Um, that uh, if if the court moves rightward or leftward, then you'll see uh, more cases where that right majority or the left majority will be able to uh, assert itself.
0: Thank you so much, Ilya Shapiro and Brian Garrod, for an illuminating, uh, scintillating, and amusing discussion of this uh, low-key but fascinating Supreme Court term. Dear We the People listeners, you know that I am always urging you to separate your political views from your constitutional views. Don't imagine that law is entirely politics. Learn enough about the best arguments on both sides so you can make up your mind about the best constitutional answer in both cases. And this great discussion reminds us that the court at its best can transcend politics and decide on the basis of a bipartisan vision of the Constitution. Um, also, be sure to join us for our special bonus podcast celebrating the remarkable 58-year career of Lyle Dennison, the dean of the Supreme Court Press Corps, and at the moment, uh, Supreme Court correspondent for the National Constitution Center's Constitution Daily. He's retiring from regular writing in July, and we will talk with him about his incredible decades covering the court on a podcast that will be released soon. Brian, Ilya, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank
0: you. My pleasure. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using @constitution_ctr. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. That means we receive little government support. We rely on the generosity and engagement and commitment and passion of people around the country who are also inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.